Okay, uh, so for those of you who are here to see George Goldman, I promise he's coming, but he's not here today. Uh, George uh, is, uh, I think he's out of town this weekend, or at least that's what he told me. So uh, he'll, be, he'll be joining us soon. Uh, my goal for today is to give you some sense of what this class is, what it's about, uh, what the objectives are. And then you can kind of make an informed decision if it's something you want to continue to invest in. And, and I hope that it is. Uh, really uh, glad to see uh, this many of you here uh, this, this morning. Uh, for those of you that I've not had a chance to meet, my name is Dave Morgan. Uh, I'm married to Anna. And uh, we have two adult children, uh, a... 22-year-old and an 18-year-old, uh, neither of whom are, are here this morning uh, for class, but uh, we'll probably see both of them later in worship. I uh, teach at Lipscomb. I'm a professor of marriage and family therapy, and I have worked at Lipscomb in some capacity for 23 years, tw 22 years, 22 years at this point. Uh, and so uh, I have a, because of my background uh, as a therapist and now teaching uh, in, uh, in that field, and because of my background growing up in church, I have a real interest in the intersection of church experience and mental health, and have been privileged to get to teach on those topics uh, at a number of of uh, opportunities over the last several years, um, talking about things like grief, how it's a very unique and personal experience, but can also be a communal experience and sort of the church's role in that. Um, things like uh, just in general, how the church can be a better partner with mental health and uh, really use uh, the resources around it. Uh, just a number of, of areas of intersection there. This came out of that interest. I'm going to tell you a little bit today about um, some things that we think we know about how our family of origin experiences affect our development as we move into adulthood. But then I'm inviting us to think about it. If we really think of the church as the family of God, which we often say we do, then there must be some similar patterns and processes in terms of how our church experiences, and I would imagine in a room like this, there's a very diverse set of church experiences, uh, how those experiences have helped form us. And so what, right? What, what? What's the sort of practical takeaway from that? What do we, what do we do with that moving forward? So that's, uh, that's kind of where we're starting, and then we'll, we'll find out by the end where we hope to go. Um, my, well, first let me say I was in Savannah a couple years ago and walked into a vintage shop. And this shirt was right there, and I just had to take a picture of it. Uh, if you met my family, you'd understand. Uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about one particular member of my family of origin 
and kind of how that connects to what we're talking about today. So uh, this is my grandmother, my, my dad's mom. Her name was Robbie. And uh, a lot of times people, one of the things people notice about me and will ask me about when they first meet me is about the boots. I wear almost exclusively cowboy boots. I do have a pair of tennis shoes. Uh, but uh, I, I have multiple pairs, and there's yes, not enough floor space in the closet for, for my boots. Um, uh, that started with my grandmother. Once a year, she would take me into town. Uh, they had a farm in Houston County uh, at Erin, Tennessee. Anybody know Erin? A couple of folks? Okay. Famous as the home of Tom Bateman here at Otter Creek. Um, I stayed at a farm in Erin, and she would take me into Clarksville once a year and buy me a new pair of boots. Uh, and uh, that, that's something that sort of took root, right? It's something that I continued uh, into, into my adulthood. Went away from it for a while, for a season, right? But came back to it later in age. Just like Scripture says, you know, you raise them up. And they may, they may temporarily depart, right, when they're young. But they'll come back around to the tree. But something else that I got from my grandmother was this love of old country music. And, and in some ways, the older the better. She had this pie safe in the kitchen. And for any of you who didn't grow up uh, in the country, or at least visiting the country growing up, it is what it sounds like it is. Right? It was a place that you could lock up the pies. Right? Uh, and they, usually there was punched tin or something where they could vent and cool, but people couldn't get to them before it was time to eat. Well, at some, you know, over time, the purpose of the pie safe transitioned, and she no longer kept uh, pies in it, but she had two things at the top of this pie safe. She had a radio, always tuned to WSM 650, which I was listening to on the way over this morning. And uh, she had an eight-track player with a, with a stack of uh, eight tracks, mostly George Jones. And music was always playing through that house. Anytime you'd go, we'd go and visit the farm. There was always that music playing. Even on Sunday mornings, you know, it would be the gospel hour. And we would, we would listen and people would be singing along before we got in the car and drove down to the acapella Church of Christ, you know. Uh, but it was okay back at the house, you know, uh, and, uh, until we, we left and went to church. But as much as she loved that music, I guess she was a little concerned about the influence that it could have because she would always give a kind of a caveat. She would say to me, now, I don't agree with everything that Merle Haggard or George Jones does in their life. <laughs> but then she'd say, but they sure can sing. You know? And I don't know, if I heard that once from her, I heard it a hundred times. Right? She just wanted to make sure that she wasn't taking me too far to the edge or something, right? 
Uh, about 10 years ago, George Jones passed away, and uh, I went, I, I was affected, oddly. I never met him, had no relationship with him, but I was affected by that. I was sad. And um, I took the morning off work and went to his funeral. Stood in a line. The line uh, for regular people, you know, came out of the Opry House, turned and went back almost to where you would leave the mall parking lot to, to walk over, you know, that little cut through over there to the hotel. I thought, there's no way I'm getting in, right? This line is, uh, is too long. Made it somehow. They got all those people in there, and it was about him on some level, right? But it was also about her. There was some familial connection, right, to the music, uh, and I guess uh, to some degree to to the man. But when those songs come on the radio today, uh, in fact. It, George Jones was on the radio this morning, Family Bi Mama's Family Bible, appropriately enough, was the song that was on this morning as I was coming in. When those songs come, come on, I can sing along with those country songs with no thought, no effort. It's like muscle memory. And it's not that I necessarily relate to all the content. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of it I don't personally, it's, it's not really consistent with my personal experience and what, some of what they're thinking about. But, but that muscle memory kicks in. And I notice that here on a Sunday morning, while we predominantly sing more contemporary songs, have, have you noticed that when one of those old book songs comes out, the volume goes up, the parts are more apparent because not everyone here grew up singing those songs, but the ones who did, again, it, 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 it's just this embedded memory right, of how to do the bass line on Our God, He is Alive, right? Or uh, what was it just a week or two ago, uh, you know, Josh was referenced uh, when Peace Like a River, right? And we sang that song. And I love the new stuff. But I notice something happening when we do some of the old stuff. And again, I think it's just that, it's, the, it's that core kind of muscle memory, if you will. Um, it's, in, it's embedded in it. If you grew up singing this. And uh, that's sort of a metaphor for a lot of different ways that we may have been affected without even fully being aware of it, right? Without even fully realizing it, we may have been affected by our experiences growing up in whatever church setting that, uh, that we did uh, grow up in. So in order to talk more about that, I need to tell you a little bit about marriage and family therapy theory. And I promise to try to do this in as painless a way as possible. But uh, 
our profession, uh, one, one of the early most important voices in marriage and family therapy was a guy named Murray Bowen. Uh, Murray Bowen is internationally important in the field of marriage and family therapy, but he's just a Middle Tennessee guy. Murray Bowen grew up in Waverly, Tennessee, of all places. And if you know where Erin is, you know where Waverly is. Because growing up, you know, spending the summers in Erin with my grandparents, if you went to town, which is anything other than the CB or Mitchum's Drugstore, right? If you needed anything that wasn't in those two places, you either went to Clarksville, that's, I mean, that's, that's the big city, or you went to Waverly. Waverly had a Walmart, okay? All right. So, uh, so I spent some time in Waverly as a kid. And here's this internationally influential therapist and theorist who grew up in, in that same part of the country. In fact, my best personal Waverly memory, same grandparents, took me to see a movie there. Waverly has a little one-screen movie theater downtown. It's still there. And, and I, I still laugh thinking about what my grandparents must have thought they had gotten into. They took me to see Labyrinth with David Bowie. <laughs> In the one, the one screen theater in, in Waverly, Tennessee. I don't know if, if you've seen it, or I, I doubt you've seen it recently, but it's, it's a pretty wild movie in, in a lot of ways, and probably not the kind of, uh, I mean, these are people who watch Dallas every week, right? I mean, this was a very different sort of, of entertainment. Uh, I'm sure she apologized for watching Dallas, too, by the way, but... Um, <laughs> Murray Bowen had these eight primary ideas about how relationships work, and in particular family relationships. And I'm not going to go through all eight of them, but I do want to briefly mention three that I think are especially relevant to, to how I want us to think about the influence of our early church experiences. The first is Bowen's concept of differentiation of self. And there's a lot that, that we could say about this. And uh, I spend weeks on just this one concept uh, with my graduate students. I'm going to just try to do it in a, in a couple of minutes here. But uh, differentiation of self has both internal and external expressions of it. So when you see intrapsychic, right, there's, there's this differentiation as I mature and as I grow, I'm better able to differentiate between my thoughts and my emotions. And it's not that I, I just choose one of those two, right? I'm, I'm able to accept that I have both of those things and, 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 but I'm able to differentiate between them. Is this, is this an emotional reaction to something? Is this a thought? And my thoughts can inform my emotions. And, and there's sort of this internal kind of um, congruence that can happen over time between the two. That's the internal part. But, but the part that, uh, that is often more 
well known is the external, the interpersonal part. So, so when I talk about being differentiated interpersonally, essentially it means I have a sense of who I am to the degree that I know this is where I stop and you start. I don't have to be someone I'm not in order to be in relationship with someone. I don't have to pretend or manipulate my way into close community with other people. That I, I find a way to be who I am and still embrace others. In particular, others who may be quite different. So I'm differentiating between my thoughts and my feelings. I'm also differentiating between myself and others. Not in an effort to cut off from them, but actually in an effort to join with them more genuinely. Right? That's the idea. And so you can see a few things that tend to happen as a result of that. I have that clear sense of self, or at least a growing uh, clarity of who I am. I become less uh, emotionally reactive to things, not because I'm denying those emotions, right, but they are being informed by thought. I become more tolerant of people that are different. And this is not the kind of tolerance we sometimes talk about where I tolerate, I put up with you. Right? So when we talk about tolerance, I tolerate you. What's really hard about being around people who are very different than you, it's not putting up with them. It's putting up with yourself in their presence. I don't like what I, the, what's happening in me when I'm around this guy. And, and the anxiety that I have about that, the lack of ability to tolerate myself in their presence, leads me to want to cut off from them. But again, differentiation isn't about cutting off. It's about being able to, to join uh, even in the face of those differences. And then it also gives me a greater ability to endure difficult things in life if I can identify the value in that, the use. There's, there's putting up with pain just for the sake of pain, and then there's putting up with pain for the sake of growth and maturity. So that's a very brief explanation of Murray Bowen's idea of differentiation itself. Um, Bowen thought that our level of differentiation was influenced significantly by our experiences in our family of origin. So by the time I exit my family of origin, there's a level of differentiation uh, that, that I've sort of arrived at based on those experiences. Now, I can continue to grow and make self-differentiated moves, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. So he's not, he wasn't necessarily suggesting that you're fully set but he was suggesting you are influenced, right? You're, you're influenced. And, and, and if, for some people in this room, the notion that you are influenced by your family of origin feels like really warm. It's really good news for you. Because you came from a relatively healthy, supportive, stable family of origin. And for others of you, it's about the worst thing I could have said. Right? Because your family of origin 
was none of those things. So I want to make sure that those of you in that category hear what I'm saying. Your influence, to say you're influenced by something, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to repeat and do the things that they did. Sometimes we learn as much about what we want to be as adults by people that we don't want to be like rather than people that we do. But we're still influenced by this, right? I, I see these patterns in my family. I don't want to repeat those. I'm going to very purposely do something different, which is in and of itself an act of differentiation. Okay, so that's one of the three I want to highlight. Questions, comments? Okay, a second one, I'm going to skip here to the family projection process. So here's the idea. If the leaders in the family lack uh, a, a, a sufficient level of differentiation, they may project their anxiety onto others, and most often, of course, that's children. Uh, and, and that has its effects on, on the children, right? And then here's what I want you to see. Expectations that guide behavior within the system. Another way of saying that is rules. The rules of the system, and that's an important concept because that's going to be important all semester. We're, we're going to refer regularly to the rules, whatever the rules were in your particular family or church experience. Rules can be communicated overtly. We, we say them. Everyone knows these are the rules. Right? So, um, uh, you know, uh, we talk openly about the importance of education. And uh, our expectation is that you're going to get an education. We might, that would be an overt rule. But then there are also covert rules. It's never said out loud, right? But we still all know the rule. Like, like we don't talk about your uncle's divorce. No one might ever say we don't talk about your uncle's divorce. That's not um, cross-stitched and framed on the wall, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not put up on the refrigerator. But, but we don't do it. And the way you know it's a rule is if you ever violated it, and the system responded to you in a way that said, oh, you're breaking a rule. See? So it can be overt or covert, uh, but, but it's passed kind of from subsystem to subsystem, parents to kids, uh, over time. And when that happens, when this is repeated generationally, this same thing that he called the family projection process, is now happening generation to generation to generation, which is the multi-generational transmission process, okay? And so, basically what I've just said, only it's happening over multiple generations, right? So these rules are getting handed down. We may or may not have context for wh why this is even a rule anymore, right? It, it mattered at some point to somebody, a, a generation, two, three generations ago, but we're not we're not exactly sure how it became a rule in our current uh, system. Okay, uh, so those things can move generationally, uh, which can, not 
will but can result in gradually lower levels of differentiation for each generation. But that's not the only possible outcome. We can course correct. We can grow in our awareness and insight as to the rules we're living by. We can ask good questions about that. What, what, why is this a rule? What, what, how does this function? What purpose does this serve? And, and that's, that's a process. That's a, those are differentiated sorts of questions to be asking. Because they ultimately put us in a position where we can make different choices and grow in our level of differentiation. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there's a wonderful example of this in Scripture. Uh, back in 1 Kings, and I'm doing this part because George is a New Testament guy. Uh, and so George is actually going to, uh, at a few points in the semester, help us think about what this process that we've just talked about, what it might look like in Galatians. Galatians is a wonderful case study on rules in the context of a church. You know, when, why in the world are we observing these rules, right? Uh, do they still serve us, right? So uh, that we, we are going to go there, but I want to take us all the way back here. This is 1 Kings chapter 22, and I choose this because there's this parallel language. Just as a reminder, uh, we are at the point of 1 Kings 22, we're in, a, in the era of a divided kingdom. You know, if, if you remember your Hebrew history, God's people did not have a king for a long time. Eventually, they were allowed to have a king. Saul was the first king. David was the second. Solomon was the third. And then things, we basically went into uh, a time of division. There's nothing, it was Solomon who said there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, what divided that kingdom was disputes over taxation and labor practices, right? Half of the kingdom felt like the king was overworking them and overtaxing them to enrich himself, right? And so uh, Solomon, under, under the rule of Solomon's son Rehoboam, uh, things split. And we now have Israel and Judah. They are neighbors, Right? But they are two separate kingdoms from that point forward. And the book of Kings is just like a back and forth, right? Here's what was happening in Israel when this was happening in Judah. And then this is what was happening in Judah when this thing was happening over here in Israel. So 1 Kings 22 start, uh, well, it's in verse 41, we're reading about what's happening over in Judah. Jehoshaphat comes to power. He becomes uh, the new king. Uh, while Ahab is the king over across the border in Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king and had a, a, a long reign for that period of time, reigned for, for 25 years. Uh, what I want you to see is this, this phrase here. In everything, 
He followed the ways of his father. He followed the ways of his father. And the result of that was, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now that exact same phrase, he followed the ways of his father, appears about ten verses later, when we, when, when we shift our focus from Judah back over to Israel. So uh, Ahaziah becomes king, he was the son of Ahab, in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat in Judah. He only reigned for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because why? He followed the ways of his father and mother. She got a shout out during this time. Right? Even in a patriarchal age, if you're a bad enough woman, you get mentioned. <laughs> um, but you see the, the same phrase, right? Same process. Bowen might say multi-generational transmission process. And, and, and one, one thing I want you to hear is he could have made, made self-differentiating moves. He could have done something different, something other than just doing what his father did. But for whatever reason, he didn't. Maybe he lacked the insight. Right? Uh, he lacked the willingness to even gain the insight. But if you don't do the work of that, what tends to happen is just sort of the, the energy, right, of, of the previous generations, it just continues and, and it kind of carries you, you through. You've heard of a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is like a system-fulfilling prophecy, like the larger system. The, the, the energy and the direction was just going to move him in this direction if he didn't intentionally stop and learn and do something different. And that's what, for me, this class it has the potential to be about, is stop and learn, and when necessary, do something different. Right? When, when it's beneficial, when it's pleasing to God, we can continue to do those things that we've always done. And when it's not, we can stop and be curious about those things and uh, consider alternatives, consider doing something uh, different, certainly. Um, this is from Edwin Friedman, who was a student of Murray Bowen, a... Um, a rabbi, a, a very well-respected author in, in the world of congregational leadership. He's probably best known for, uh, in 1985, publishing the book Generation to Generation, Family Process in Church and Synagogue. Uh, but he observes that it has been emphasized that problems in a family can be the residue of emotional processes carried over from previous generations. The exact same transmission can occur with congregational families. And when I think about that, and I think about Otter Creek, 
I think the way we might experience it here could be different than in some other types of systems, congregational systems, but we're still going to experience it. What I mean by that is some of us grew up in churches that we might call closed systems. Closed congregational systems. Where, you know, at, you, 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 we sort of got the, sort of the, to, to borrow the, the uh, language of Matthew 1, this, this generation begat this generation begat this generation. They're all still there, right? Relatively closed. Not a lot of new inputs from the outside. Otter Creek doesn't fall into that category, right? Because of where we're situated. We have lots of new inputs. We have people uh, that join us from all sorts of different different streams and traditions <coughs> in church history. Uh, so we may experience this differently than my grandparents' church that we went to every Sunday after listening to WSM 650. But we still experience it, um, even if it's in even if it's in somewhat different ways. This semester, I want to talk about two primary ways in which those influences uh, manifest. Uh, the first is, as I've already mentioned, rules. We want to talk about what are the rules that I grew up with? What are the overt rules, right? The ones that, and they were said, and often they were said repeatedly. They may have been said from the pulpit. They may have been said in youth class, you know. Um, they, they, were, they were very overt. But then also, what were those covert rules, the things that were never quite said out loud, but we still notice those things influencing us, perhaps even today. And again, because of what I've said previously about the diversity of those of us who come here, we can't assume that our church of origin rules were necessarily our, our neighbor's church of origin rules. Uh, you're going to have some points of overlap, right? But there's also likely some differences. And I'll say more about that in a moment. The other area that we're going to look at this semester is Roles in relationships. Roles meaning uh, how, are, how are people supposed to act? How am I supposed to act? Uh, how are men supposed to act? Or how are women supposed to act? You know, uh, what, what leaders supposed to act and followers supposed to act? You know, much of what we think we know about how folks are supposed to be, including ourselves, was formed in these earlier family and, uh, and church experiences. Uh, so, if we do that, if, if we sort of work our way through those things, uh, we, we go again to Galatians as we plan to do uh, at different points in the semester and sort of see how what their experience was of rules 
and what their experience was of roles, you know, as a case study. If we do that, here are some takeaways that I hope for. I, I hope that if, if you go through the class, you're better able to identify rules from your own personal church experience, both the overt spoken ones and the covert ones. And if you judge them to be constructive, how do you hold on to those in 2023? And if you judge those to be destructive, what do you do about that? Do those some do we are are some of us living by some rules that need to be reconsidered, revised, even replaced? Now, I was alluding to this a moment ago. I think another really uh, uh, important potential takeaway here is when I'm mad about something happening at church, can I stop and identify what that's about? And is, is it possible that when I'm mad or irritated about something going on at church, it's because other people in this church have the, the audacity <laughs> to violate my church rules. How do they not know them? Everybody knows these rules, right? You know, and, and how, how dare they, right? I, I think it can be really beneficial to gain some insight in, into that. A third uh, potential takeaway this is getting to the roles. What did you learn to do to navigate relationships when you were younger? And then what does that look like now in adulthood? And how well do those things work? Right? I don't want to say too much about this now because we'll, you know, we'll really unpack this more in, uh, in a week to come. But... Um, Some of you might have learned, as a young person, to be funny to navigate relationships. And you have found in adulthood that that works better in some contexts than others, and it's not always as appreciated, right? <laughs> but you know, you're sort of still doing, right? The thing that you learned to do, it worked when you were 10, right? And sometimes it works at 50, but sometimes it, it, it doesn't, right? A um, couple more. What would it look like to hold on to your needs while growing into a more Christ-informed role? This is very much what Galatians is about, that, that Christ-informed role. Paul is really pressing hard in his letter to the Galatians about, uh, you think you need all these rules for security. Well, security, that's a, that's a valid need. Nothing wrong with wanting to feel safe and, and protected and uh, reassured about my salvation, right? But Paul is encouraging them to hold, to find that in something other than a bunch of arbitrary rules, right? He doesn't take issue with the Galatians' need to feel secure. 
he takes issue with them replacing Christ with some of these other man-made rules. And then, um, last one I'll mention here, and uh, there, there can certainly be other outcomes, but these are just some that come to mind for me. What about, there, there's several folks in here who have um, children, grandchildren, and you know the value in church, as imperfect as it is, and you want them to continue to engage and invest in church and be blessed by church. What rules do we want the emerging generations to learn in church? And how do we want them to learn? What do we want them to learn about how to navigate relationships that may or may not be different? Some of it may be the same things that we learn. And we intentionally want to continue to transmit those things. But perhaps there's some other things that we would want them to learn as well. So, uh, we're right about at the time, but any, anything that I could answer that might help to clarify sort of where we hope to go here. Okay, well, thank you so much. It is, uh, I think we're so, we're so does anybody know what time we're supposed to be done? I, I think it's 15 till, so I went a little bit uh, over. Uh, but uh, thank you very much. And uh, oh, let me mention if, uh, if you have questions that you'd prefer not to ask in this context, but that you would like addressed at some point this semester, uh, I didn't put it on a slide, but my email is real easy. It's just my name, dave.morgan at lipscomb.edu. And uh, shoot those my way, and we'll try to work those in. So thank you very much. Yeah.